few verses. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Kedoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabah, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All of these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years, they had been subject to Kedaleoma. In the thirteenth year, they rebelled. You just click the next slide. There we go. In the fourteenth year, Kedaleoma and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphites in Ashtaroth, Hernan, and the Zuzites in Ham, and the Emites in Sheva, Keriathane, and the Horites in the hill country of Sire, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that's Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedalioma, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Alessa, four kings up against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. And the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. And they also carried off Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. Now you can see, well, I didn't get anyone else to do the reading this morning. <laughs> but asked one of the kids that, that loved all the names. Bop, bop, baloo, bop, king of Ramalama, ding, dong, whatever. Those are funny names. A lot of them don't exist anymore. And some of them are only remembered because of this passage, or the passages about this. But there were real people living at a real time. The kingdom of Elam was a tremendously powerful kingdom. The king of Kedalioma, who led this, these four northern, or east, as it says on this slide, the northeast alliance, was a massive kingdom. And there's, there's archaeology to show it. And it was the predecessor of the Babylonians and the Persians. Anyway, digress. I get, get history and geography. I get excited about Was this what Abraham was expecting when God gave him this gift? Was he expecting his nephew and his family to be enslaved and carried off as a result of coming into this land that God had promised him he was going to inherit? I'm not so sure. These four powerful kings from the wealthy lands around the Euphrates decided to come and give these little upstart kings in, in the, uh, the valley a lesson they wouldn't forget. And there they rebelled. And he and Lot were about to get caught up in the middle of it all. The nation of Israel was to become a nation close to God's heart. A nation that represented God to the world. A nation tried and tested so that its example would shine before the nation. A people without God would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Who had no right to exist. This little upstart people. Like the others that lived in the land before them. Swallowed up by powerful enemies. But who with God, and only with God, to thrive and prosper and bless the world. And we see the beginnings of this trial right here, this test, this examination, this refining. Let's look at Lot and Abraham. Both of the men were men who knew the Lord. They understood who the Lord was. 
But as Joel took us through last week, Lot was a man who walked in the flesh. He walked by sight and not by faith. He trusted first and foremost what he could see and what he thought was the right thing to do. He saw this lush Jordan Valley and the easy life around the city of Sodom. Despite the evil of the city and the reputation that it had, he couldn't resist just living close to it. And then we read in this passage, he actually moved in. He got absorbed into the city of Sodom and was living as part of this wicked city. And we can take this as a picture of our lives as Christians. If we live by sight, where we, camp our t- that where we pitch our tent, if we live by sight by our own desires and our own knowledge and our own feelings and just what we feel like this morning and what seems just like the right thing to do, instead of on faith in the word of God, it's so easy to compromise and get swept away when we get close to sin. And all too soon we find we're weaker than we thought we were. And sin's got a hold of us. And and we're living in lives that are in darkness and not in light, like Lot was doing. It's very easy, perhaps, to point the finger at other people with certain sins that are obvious, drink, sex, drugs. The dangers are obvious. But it applies to all sin. What about gossip? What about meanness and selfishness of all sorts? What about simply dishonesty? If we live by sight, if we don't listen to the Holy Spirit in his whispers in our ear, it's easy to live lives that are indistinguishable from our unsaved friends around about. And we face the same consequences and dangers that they do. And we move further and further away from God's safety. And God knows that. And so often he'll give us a warning shot. And I think that's perhaps what happened here in the story that we've just read to Lot. Tests and trials are often forms of God's discipline. God's building up our character. And it's up to us how we respond to that test and that trial. And sometimes they start small. A verbal warning from a godly friend, text in the Bible passage, that we just, just chimes and makes us think twice. And they can progress to a full-on spanking if we persistently ignore God. We know that's how discipline works. We see it. We're made in the image of God and it's how we discipline our own children when they're disobedient. It starts with a tone of voice and a hard stare and progresses to a wrist grab and a telling off and maybe even a finger wagging. If that doesn't stop the problem, then it's time out or the naughty step. Or if you're a redneck, then you may get a bit more creative. But sometimes God has to get our attention in the same way. It's not duct tape, but we face a small consequence at first. And if that doesn't get our attention, then God sometimes allows us to progress and face the full consequence and the ultimate reality of our sin. When our life is destroyed afterwards, then we perhaps realise we should have risen. And pain is often necessary for survival. Hebrews 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. We can learn in the sanctuary or we can learn in the storm. If we refuse difficult teaching from the pulpit or the Bible study or the godly friend, then aside from God's sovereign grace and restraint, we have no option but to learn in the storm. So we read in this bit where Lot is carried off as a slave, as plunder, with no rights and no hope by the northern kings. And God in his grace sends Abraham to rescue him this time. 
verses 13 to 17, if you're following in your Bible. Man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Ashkol and Aina, all of whom were allied with Abraham. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relatives, Lot, and his possessions, together with all the women and the other people. Wow. <laughs> An adventure in four verses. Reads like something out of a Biggles book, or a, it's the kind of thing you read in Lawrence of Arabia or something, crammed into four verses. Let's get this into context. These kings that they were fighting were powerful men, powerful armies. The Bible doesn't tell us the numbers involved in this particular case, but they must have numbered thousands. Armies at that time were huge. And we're talking about powerful kings. A couple of hundred years after the passage in the Bible, the pharaoh Ramesses II fought the Hittites at Kadesh, one of the cities mentioned in this passage in Syria, just a few miles away up the road from where um, Abram was living. And the Battle of Kadesh is one of the best recorded ancient battles that we have from the time. And this is an, in, an Egyptian inscription of the battle, and you can see dozens and dozens of people there representing thousands. The numbers are huge. The inscription tells there were 6,000 chariots involved and around 30,000 infantry at the Battle of Kadesh. The kings of the Middle East had huge numbers of men to, to com command. And here's Abraham with his 318 retainers and a few of their mates mounting a sneak attack on the army of an alliance of kings that could rival the power of ancient Egypt. What an attack. Let's look at the map again, put it into context. Hebron up to Dan. So, down here, Hebron up to Dan, where he chased them, is 80 or so miles. And that's a picture of the gate of the, what's now called Dan. Of course, it wasn't called Dan at the time. And that's possibly a gate that Abraham went through. And it still exists today, 4,000 years later. You ran, they chased them 80 miles up the, up the valley. And then on to Hobar, near Damascus, was probably, probably another 60 or so miles on 40, making a total distance of about 140 miles. These 300 guys and their friends chased the army of thousands. And they were on foot. They didn't have horses. They didn't have chariots. The stirrup hadn't been invented then, so they didn't have cavalry. These guys were on Shanks' pony. And Abram did this for his ungrateful nephew who'd gone to live with the pagans and suffered the consequences. But the Lord blessed him with success. It's like Gideon. Abram's strength didn't lie in his army. It didn't lie in the few hundred guys he'd got doing the work. It lay in his faith. Abram walked by faith, not by sight. And God blessed him. And Abram brings the tribe back home and we have this wonderful, this amazing, the next bit, this unique encounter. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedah Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that's the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemy into your hand. 
and then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So as Abraham was traveling down the west bank of the Jordan River, he's met by this character, Melchizedek. Appears apparently out of nowhere. He's like the shopkeeper in Mr. Ben, if you're old enough to remember that program. I know Daniel, Daniel is, although he's out running today, because he posted it up on Facebook last week. He was one of his favorite programs from when, when he was a kid. Do you remember that? Mr. Ben walks into his shop and he can't see anything. Suddenly, Mr. the shopkeeper appeared. It's almost like that. I'm being a bit flippant. I apologize for that. But suddenly, this character, there's no context. There's nothing before. We don't hear of Melchizedek before. We never hear of him again in terms of historical account. He's just there. I'm sure there's more to it than that. But sometimes God inspires the Bible's authors to just put the bare bones of the narrative for a very particular purpose. So what's going on with this character? The first thing to note is that the King's Valley that we read about is probably the valley that later became known as the Kidron Valley. That valley sits between the Mount of Olives in the east and Mount Moriah, in which the city of Jerusalem is built, in the west. That valley, that 2,000 years later, is in the shadow of a piece of land that would be known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we read about in this passage is the first instance in the Bible of the concept of the priesthood. First use of the title El Elyon, that the, Nas- the New International Version translates as God Most High, that we just wrote, read about. The Most High God, the God of Gods, King of Kings. The title that Daniel, is, uh, it's only next used in the Bible by Daniel 1,500 years later to describe the God of all people, Jew and Gentile, together. And Melchizedek is a king and a priest of El Elyon, God Most High. And this small passage is all we have of this, as a historical account. This isolated passage about a man who comes from nowhere and goes to nowhere. He's without lineage, which speaks of eternity. Nearly a thousand years later, David writes Psalm 110. is the next time we hear about any reference to Melchizedek. And we read in Psalm 110 that the Messiah, who David's prophesying about, is a priest forever in this order of Melchizedek. The Messiah that David's expecting and he hasn't experienced yet but God has inspired him to write a song about is in this order. And then there's silence again in the biblical narrative for another thousand years until the writer to the Hebrews explains it all. And in Hebrews 6 and 7 we read how Jesus through his death and resurrection has fulfilled the prophecy and become a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Our, our eternal high priest and king. Because according to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses that was to come yet, a priest had to come from the Levitical line of Aaron. But Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So he couldn't become a Levitical priest. And according to the Mosaic law, a priest couldn't be a king. They had to be separate. Yet Jesus was king of the Jews and our high priest at the same time. So that could have been a problem. And that would have been an issue. But before the Levitical law had even been written, before it had been given to Moses, while it was still only a potential in the descendants of Abraham, Melchizedek was a king and a high priest of God Most High, of El Elyon. The only other priesthood that's recognized by God and which trumps the other because it precedes it. And its progenitor, Abraham, was blessed by it and so is less than it. 
the blesser is greater than the blessed. And Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek and is less than Melchizedek. Levi, who receives the tithes under the law, paid tithes and homage to Melchizedek through Levi's great ancestor, Abraham. The Aaronic priesthood is a shadow of the greater priesthood and Jesus is it there. What a picture God has drawn in his word in thus these four verses that were written thousands of years before the time of Christ. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Who's the only righteous one? Jesus. Melchizedek was king of Salem, king of peace, that means. And in that order, righteousness preceding peace. In God's word, righteousness always precedes peace. We just read it in Hebrews 12. Righteousness first. And with righteousness comes peace. Isaiah 32, again, the Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile land. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. Jesus is the king of righteousness and brings peace to us. And what did Melchizedek physically bring to Abraham? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. In scripture, bread represents life and wine represents gladness and rejoicing. And together, in the valley below Jerusalem, before Jerusalem was even built, Salem, the body of Christ, is administered to Abraham. And as Melchizedek shared this gift of bread and wine with Abraham, 2,000 years later, on almost exactly the same spot on the earth, Jesus took the bread and the cup, representing his broken body and his shed blood for his disciples. What an amazing picture. What an amazing thing the word of God is. The Bible that we've received. And we have Abraham's response. He tithes everything he possesses as an offering to God Most High. He's given him the victory and restored his family back to him against all the odds. Now, you can't expect me to go past this without comment. I'm the treasurer and tithing's close to my heart. So forgive me, but I can't skip over this passage. We look at this, and there's a few things to note. Abraham gives a tenth of everything he owns in worship to God by Melchizedek. His response to God's graciousness in his life is to give a tenth of what God has given him, give it back to God. He hasn't looked at Melchizedek and looked at his, read his accounts and looked at the temple roof appeal and thought, mm, maybe I'll give him a few shekels, but you know, if he looks after it well. It's not about need. It's about generosity and worship. Abraham worships God with his wallet and not just his words. Generosity is worship. It's very easy in Christian work and in a church and in administration of a church and in this world where money is, a, is the blood of, the lifeblood of the world. We get hung, over, hung up over money and financial need. And both sides of us get the coin get hung up over it. As givers, we want to make sure that the church is, or wherever is worthy of what we give them. And I want them to spend it on this, because I see that as really important. But not that, that's just a waste of time. And as the church, the temptation, as the church leadership, the temptation is to try and raise needs and expect people to fund them and get worried if they don't. And of course, while it's important, vastly important to be accountable and honest and transparent in financial dealings as a church, particularly when there's 
many unscrupulous people about to exploit the people and bring the church into disrepute and misuse money that's been given to them in good faith. The reality is we give the money when we give into the collection, when we give as an offering, when we give as our gift, we give it back to God for his purpose. And it's responsibility for church leaders to seek to honour God by using the money that God has given them wisely and for his purpose. And we don't want to see abuse of this. We see some horror stories in the news of bad stewardship by people claiming to be working for the Lord. Hell evangelists have a lot to answer for. And I'm sure they will. And it's wrong and it's sinful. And in order to demonstrate that we're not that, we have to be transparent and honest and act with integrity. But equally, we don't really just want to be focused on financial need and obsessed with it. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to inspire worship. And as a worshipper, we have to recognise that we aren't buying anything. We're returning to God a portion of what God has blessed us with as an expression of joy. Someone once said to me, isn't it mean of God to expect a whole tenth of everything that I've worked hard for? And I didn't say it, I bit my tongue, but what I should have said was, isn't it generous of God to allow you to keep 90% of what he's given you? In the New Covenant, we don't have the Mosaic Law of Tithing. This gift of, Mel- of Abraham to Melchizedek is before the Mosaic Law, before the idea of tithing to the priests. It demonstrates a scriptural principle. It's an idea. And in a, 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 a spontaneous, generous gift of Abraham. And Jesus was critical of the Pharisees, obsessed with rigidity about tithing and this 10% idea, and they would even tithe the growth in their plants, their, their herbs in their garden. They were that focused on it. And as an accountant, I can get that. You know, that, that's 10% means 10%. It doesn't mean 10.1% or 9.9%. It means 10%. So, the reality is in the, in the Aaronic law, 10% went to the Levites, but another 10% went to fund festivals and sacrifice and somewhere between 3 and 7% on top of that went for the, for, for, uh, in terms of gleaning and things like that to help poor people. So actually, tithing meant something like 25% in the, old, in the Mosaic law. And then when we look at the New Covenant eyes, the, um, Jesus takes the law one step beyond. Jesus condemns adultery, but he points out that even looking lustfully at someone is adultery. The law demands 10%, but Jesus commends the widow who gives her might, everything she has, everything she possesses to the temple treasury, because it's of worship. It's her expression of worship. The point is 10% perhaps is our beginning of our generosity, not the end. And if we're treating it as a mathematical rigid straitjacket, then we're missing the whole point. It doesn't matter if it, if it was 10% or 5%. It, it's, the point is we're giving generously. So let's look at our own giving with new covenant eyes. Do we give to God the first fruits because we live by faith and we're looking for opportunities to bless others and the wealth God's given us in stewardship isn't ours so we want to share it generously with needs that we see. Is that our attitude? Or are we looking to the finances through the eyes Lot had? through the mean-spirited, ungenerous, selfish eyes that the Pharisees had. Walking by sight, not by faith. Well, I need this 90% because I've got to get my pension scheme in and I need a new car next month. And Where am I going to eat? Well, I, 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 have to, I couldn't have that 
meal I was expecting, if I've given that money away, I'd have to just have Rice Krispies or something. We get hung up on money. Be generous is the point. And it applies to our time too, not just our money. I find it, I find it hard to be generous with my time than I do with my money. I hoard my free time and jealously dole it out one minute by one minute as if I didn't have an eternity to spend. If you have time, and we all have some time, we need to spend it for God's glory. and Give it to him willingly and generously too. Linda needs befrienders to help with the inundation of cat clients we have. Why hasn't she been swamped with offers of people just from region willing to help out as befrienders? All the people of the cat clients need is someone who knows Jesus, is willing to get in touch and be a friend to them. They need a friend who knows Jesus. No experience necessary, just a bit of time and a bit of care and a bit of willingness to give that time in worship to God. Now, of course, God gives us income and time to support ourselves. I don't want anyone going away from here taking out a payday loan and giving it all to Regent. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't leave yourself without money. No one, that's not what I'm talking about. I don't want people volunteering for 75 jobs and then just running around the church site and stressing themselves out. That's not good stewardship. Don't do anything silly. But can I suggest, if we find it difficult to give generously to God by the church and to missionary organisations, to our neighbour, to our next door neighbour in need, wherever they are, to our family, maybe we aren't inspired enough to actually worship where it counts. We can sing as loud as we like, but if we don't sacrifice our time and our money, then has our love for Jesus got any substance and strength? And I'm not going to judge. It's not the treacherous job to judge. That's not what I'm talking about. It's wheat for us to look in our hearts and see where it's coming from and respond. We all die. It all ends up in a box. We can't take anything with it, but we can send it ahead. So Abraham responds to Melchizedek's blessing. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And this is what he's referring to, I think. Maybe. Abraham's a man of faith. He walks by faith. He's witnessing through the eyes of faith the day of Christ and the redemption of all mankind. At the birth of the nation of Israel, he's given a glimpse of the coming Messiah who will redeem the world. And he worships him. As long before Christ's coming in time as we are after it, he witnessed it and worshipped. But we're not quite finished. Right at the end of the passage, right after Abraham's triumph and celebration, comes this one final text. And so often the case in our own lives, that is, isn't it? It's, it's, we experience a great blessing, blessing on the mountaintop, and we're right on the mountaintop, and we're worshipping, and we're wonderful, and then something comes along to test us all. <laughs> We're right back in it again, right back down on the ground. And it's as if God's saying, yes, I believe you, you did well and I blessed you, but have you really learnt the lesson? You've obeyed me in small things. Let's just see if you've really got it and you can handle greater things. The last bit of the passage reads like this. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give, the, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, Raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal. So you'll never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. 
I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aina, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. What's going on here? The king of Sodom tries to trap Abraham and wheedle some of his goods back that Abraham's redeemed from the northern kings. And it's amazing. We actually have a copy of the law code that the people living under the authority of these Mesopotamian kings at the time would have abided by. It's called the Code of Hammurabi. And it's this set of inscriptions setting out the law of the kings of the region. It dates to the 18th century BC, precisely this period, and it's still there on clay tablets and on stone. So we know from the culture of the day, Abraham would have been entitled to actually keep all that, um, to keep all of the plunder that he'd just rescued from the northern kings. The king of Sodom didn't actually have any right to ask Abraham for anything. They were Abraham's already because he'd redeemed them. But the king of Sodom tries to flatter Abraham, tries to get him to give him back some of the spoils, and Abraham doesn't fall for it. Under this code of Hammurabi, he was entitled to keep it anyway. Not just what the king of Sodom was offering, but he could have appealed to the law, and the people around would have seen it just and supported him, and he could have kept everything. But Abraham lives by, by faith and not by sight. One more time. He's learned the lesson he'd learned painfully in Egypt. He's trusted entirely in God and not in his own strength. And he's just seen God work wonderfully, this miraculous victory in battle of a few men against many men. And while it's not the last test that Abraham will face, it's made him stronger. And Abraham's prosperity and inheritance is an inheritance we'll all share. It's placed squarely in God's hands, and it's safe. And Abraham's ready for a covenant with God, and he says to the king of Sodom, take it, I don't want it, you can have it. It's not mine, I don't want it, I've got God. And I don't need to play games with you. We'll hear more of that next. Let's just pray today we worship Jesus with our own eyes of faith. Just as Abraham did 4,000 years ago. We look backwards in time to Christ's first coming. And we look forward in time to the time where we're going to be again in his presence. And we worship. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for this word that you have given us. This passage that just shows us that even so long ago you were at work and Jesus wasn't an accident and wasn't a disaster but was a plan and we're here today because 4,000 years ago or longer you knew that we would need Jesus and you loved us